0: Henry Morehouse took his people on a guided tour of the scriptures showing that how in every age God loved those who had sinned. Moody said when he heard it, the tears came, it was like news from a far country.
1: going to talk about D.L. Moody today on First Person. However, since Mr. Moody isn't available, we have the next best thing, biographer Kevin Belmonte. Welcome to today's program. I'm Wayne Shepard. First Person is a weekly conversation. I'm glad you could join us today. You'll learn much more about this program online at firstpersoninterview.com. There on our website, you'll find not only today's program to listen to at your convenience, but also an audio archive of past interviews as well as the upcoming schedule. Check it out at FirstPersonInterview.com. And then to leave a comment, visit our Facebook page, Facebook.com slash FirstPersonInterview. With us today is Kevin Belmonte, the author of numerous books and biographies, including bios of William Wilberforce, G.K. Chesterton. But we're focusing on the great 19th century evangelist Moody, who was a gifted man in so many ways, a real world changer. I began by asking Kevin why he chose Moody to write about.
0: Well, for me, the journey really began with a book that I wrote for my British publisher about Billy Graham. That was a few years back. And it was really a travel guide to following Billy Graham's life and story uh, that uh, my British publisher day one wanted me to do. But in the midst of researching Dr. Graham's life, I discovered that he had a deep admiration and respect for D.L. Moody. And indeed, when I looked out at Wheaton College's uh, collection of uh, Billy Graham archives, they had his life blocked out pretty much for every day of his life, say from 1950 on forwards. And uh, when I had a look at those early years, I discovered that I think it was in April 1950, Uh, Billy Graham had made a special point of going to Northfield, which is Mr. Moody's birthplace and hometown, and visiting his graveside and having a special time of prayer. And I was very moved uh, to find that out and to discover that Dr. Graham wanted to make it a special point to go there. It was almost as though, metaphorically speaking, there was a passing of the mantle because so many of the, uh, the features and facets of D.L. Moody's life became things that made Dr. Graham's ministry remarkable and and continue to this day, you know, going to places where people who were unchurched wouldn't normally uh, have the opportunity to hear the gospel, being very innovative, uh, being unconventional. Um, going anywhere, really, where there was an opportunity. Those kinds of things seem to resonate very powerful uh, from Moody's life with Dr. Graham. So I thought that was a wonderful subject to revisit at some point in the future.
1: It's interesting you mentioned that. Having just finished your book on Moody yesterday, I commented to my wife last night, you know, we've never been to Northfield, and I would love to go see Moody's grave sometime. So I think we're going to put that on our our simple bucket list, so to speak, and, <laughs> uh, and do that. But that's interesting to hear. I told you in an email as we prepared for this conversation that when I finished your book, I felt like I had lost a friend. I felt like I had gotten to know D.L. Moody. Now, you know, we all know about the life of Moody, and yet I don't think we know enough about the life of Moody. And you, you filled in so many of the blanks, and I really appreciate that.
0: Thank you. That really means a lot. Uh, you know, when you're telling the story of someone like Mr. Moody, for whom... In many respects, there is that pre awareness that you put your finger on. Many people will know the name and perhaps a little bit about his life and legacy. Uh, but the journey of discovery that, that I embarked on uh, was so much more than I ever thought to find. And uh, I thought uh, if I'm going to help reintroduce Mr. Moody, as it were, to a more modern audience, uh, the best thing I could do uh, was to try and, and craft a narrative biography. And, and we think of so many fine biographers who do that today. Uh, the, the benchmark for me is David McCullough yes. with books like John Adams. You know, he's really set the bar. He's established a model for uh, telling the stories of great men and women from the past. So that was very much in my mind as I thought about telling Mr. Moody's story. Yeah,
1: well, it's it goes beyond the facts, Kevin. And you know this well. I mean, I mean, you spent I don't know how long preparing this book, but it goes beyond the facts to capture a lot of almost the emotion. Uh, as an example of that. We all know of the early life of D.L. Moody and how his mother was widowed at an early age with all the children. But you capture the emotion of all that. And then at the end of the book, it comes full circle back to that as he buy, Tell me the, the, the briefly the story about the, the mortgage holder coming to the farm and demanding money from the widow. And then at the end of Moody's life, what happened?
0: Yeah, no, it's an amazing, incredibly dramatic and moving chapter in his life. Moody lost his father when he was four years old. Uh, there were seven children at that time. His mother, as it turned out, was far along in her pregnancy with twins. So not too long after his father died, uh, very tragically, at the age of 41, uh, Betsy Moody gave birth to twins, so they were now nine mouths to feed and provide for. Uh, that was uh, an incredibly difficult and challenging time uh, when her husband died. Uh, there were outstanding debts. The creditors uh, came en masse, and uh, one of them was a gentleman named uh, Purple. Uh, <laughs> quite an amazing surname, but very <laughs> sounds a bit like Scrooge. You know, someone, you can almost picture the cruelty. But uh, this man really was. Uh, he just. Uh, he was one of those people that had uh, so little of the milk of human kindness within him, and uh, he demanded as much as he could possibly get, I and mean, they took everything right down to the kindling wood for their fires. The only thing that they were able to save, they, they hid a calf in the woods so that they could have some milk, and they hid, uh, Moody's father was a stonemason, they hid uh, his tools uh, Away in one of the garrets or the attic, so that perhaps one of the sons, when they were old enough, could follow the mason's trade. But they lost everything else. And uh, this gentleman, uh, Moody, uh, Moody's mom, was still in bed uh, recovering from her giving birth. And this guy literally burst into the bedroom demanding money. And she did the only thing that you could really do, which is, you know, I'll get it as soon as I can. Please, you know, have some mercy on us. Uh, and he would have none of it. And, uh, just incredibly cruel thing to think about. Uh, you know, a single mom with nine kids. I mean, we put ourselves in that position. What would we do? Well, the man, uh, you know, had some curses and left. And and when he did, he got into the carriage and the, he hit the horses with the whip so hard that the harness broke and he was pitched headlong. And the the comment by the neighbors who were outraged over his behavior was, "It was a pity he didn't break his neck." <laughs> <laughs> but uh, suffice it to say, uh, you know, to fast forward a little bit through Moody's story as a young man, uh, very much hand-to-mouth that the kids left home as soon as they were old enough to begin doing work for extended periods of time to be able to, to bring in what money they could. Thankfully, a local pastor, uh, Oliver Everett, I believe he was his name, uh, was able to come alongside the family and just be, you know, a real beacon of hope there in a very difficult time. Well, fast forward all the way to near the close of Moody's life, when he's founding the great schools out in Northfield that people remember. Of course, we know MBI as well, but there were three schools there in Northfield, and when he was just beginning to found those, uh, he found out that the farm of none other than this man, uh, Ezra Purple, uh, was now available for purchase, and they were looking for a site uh, for the boys' school that Mr. Moody wanted to found. It's called the Mount Herman School, and... Uh, God in his providence and kindness uh, turned what was a very painful circumstance in Mo- Moody's boyhood. God redeemed that whole set of painful circumstances, and one of Moody's friends who had deep pockets and was a real benefactor to the work of education there uh, purchased the property, and that is now the site of the Mount Hermon <laughs> School. That's now Northfield, Mount Hermon, and uh, it's just fantastic to think yeah, about such that. such a great story.
1: Kevin, as we look at historical figures like D. L. Moody, we often characterize them in in mono, so to speak, instead of stereo. We don't see them for, you know, all that they were. And I was just struck from reading your book, how unconventional, how multi-dimensional D. L. Moody really was,
0: yeah, you know he he really was. Uh, he had uh, great gifts that the Lord gave him, a lot of rough edges when he was starting out. Uh, he very found it very difficult uh, to, to read. Uh, he only had a few years of formal schooling, very much like Abraham Lincoln. Uh, but he embarked on a remarkable program of self-education, and people who knew him when he was younger marveled over the man that he'd become when he was older, uh, someone who had it... Uh, Spelling was an adventure for him. (laughs) You read his letters, it was not easy for him to do, but uh, he really got up early each morning, four or five in the morning, and studied and read, and he had people who were better educated than he. He would sit at their feet, And learn from them. He would often say, you know, what is your best thought today? Give me something out of your heart and write it down. And so he did this throughout his life, and it was a wonderful transformation that took place. And I was sharing, I was just invited to speak by Mr. Moody's great grandson uh, to give a sermon a couple Sundays ago out there in Northfield to remember Mr. Moody. And it was really uh, keeping the, the tradition of the great Northfield conferences going, so it was a huge honor to be a part of it all. But one of the things I shared with them just to, to illustrate this remarkable transformation that had taken place with Moody, uh, he was talking about uh, John Milton, of all people, the great poet, and uh, the miracle of turning water into the wine. And then he quoted Milton, and he said, the conscious water saw its God and blushed. This beautiful poetic line, these were things that became a part of Moody's life. But when it came to being unconventional, I I think when he came to the ministry, he had no formal theological training. You're quite right. And the thing that's remarkable about it is he was a very successful business person. And so when it came to constructing his sermons, for example, he had a whole huge collection, hundreds of manila folders for each of his sermons. And inside these folders, he would tuck notes from the Bible, but also newspaper columns, stories uh, from you know, current events that would capture uh, his imagination and lend themselves to the telling of a sermon on a particular subject or a passage of Scripture. And he was continually adding to and pulling from, revising. Uh, it was a marvelous way of preparing sermons, but it gave them a freshness and immediacy Uh, that was often very lacking. You know, we think of Victorian sermons, and we think of these very flowery, sometimes very eloquent, but very long. Uh, For people who were unchurched, it must have been a difficult thing, as Moody discovered when he was younger and began going to church, to try and uh, enter into that whole experience. But Moody, everyone who wrote about his sermon said that there was a freshness and immediacy. It was like someone coming alongside you and having a conversation with you, and they marveled at the way that he could take sometimes difficult subjects and as Billy Graham so often said, you know, put the cookies on the lower shelf Uh, help people understand things uh, for the first time, give them a welcome to the things of faith that they found really captivating. And uh, when Moody would give his sermons, one of the things that was remarkable is he was always very uh, sensitive, very attuned to the atmosphere there in the room. So if he needed to change things up, if he felt uh, as though he wanted to ask Ira Sankey to lead people in more singing, he would do that. I think one of the nicest examples that I have concerns uh, a baby who once cried during one of the services. And uh, there's a quick story here. I'll share it, if I may. Uh, He he was preaching, and uh, all of a sudden, a baby started to cry, and people were throwing cruel looks. You know, you need to take that baby out of the room. And uh, Moody noticed it right away, and he asked her to stay where she was. And he said, my lungs are stronger than the babies, and if anyone doesn't like it, they may leave. (laughs) But then he did something more. At the close of the service, he announced the next afternoon he'd preach to mothers with babies in their arms, and no one, he said, without a baby will be admitted. (laughs) And the gentleman who wrote about this, uh, J. Wilbur Chapman, said, the scene touched the great preacher's heart, and his words touched the hearts of all the mothers, and uh, Mr. Moody said afterward with a wink, a good many of the women must have borrowed babies for the occasion.
1: (laughs) So that's the kind of person he was. More stories about D.L. Moody coming up from his biographer, Kevin Belmonte, next on First Person. Next time on First Person, Christian businessman Bill Pollard talks about being a steward.
0: God owns everything. That's Psalm 24. God owns everything. Time, talent, treasure. And the parable of the talents confirms that God doesn't want us to give back to what he's entrusted to us. He wants more.
1: We'll talk about Bill's book, The Tides of Life, next time on First Person. My guest today is Kevin Belmonte, the author of D.L. Moody, A Life, Innovator, Evangelist, World Changer. Kevin, of course, has written many other books as well, including Wilberforce. And Kevin, let me talk about that for just a moment. That's another inspiring story, a a historical character who has much to teach us today.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It was a tremendous experience. And indeed, we just had uh, Lady Davson. We call her Kate, but she's Lady Daz, and she was just here to stay with us here in Maine for a week, and we had a wonderful time. So Mr. Wilberforce is not only a friend from history, as it were, but uh, God has blessed and opened the door of friendship with his family. But really was remarkable for me personally, uh, because my book was in manuscript, and I'd written to a dear friend and mentor for my wife Kelly and me, Dr. Oz Guinness, mm-hmm. and asked for a blurb. And uh, Oz was kind enough to do that, but unbeknownst to me, uh, he sent the manuscript along, the book had not appeared in print just yet, sent the manuscript along to Philip Anschutz, who is the owner of Walden Media and all the wonderful film companies that have done the Narnia films. and. That was my way into a six-year journey on working on the film as the lead script and historical consultant. And the invitation came from none other than Mr. Anschutz himself. And I got this marvelous letter. I had no idea what was going on behind the scenes. Got this marvelous letter uh, saying, you know, I've read your book. It's, it's a fine book. I think we could get a very special story here. Uh, would you like to join a film project? <laughs> <laughs> So I called, I called Oz Guinness, you know, uh, wondering what in the world was going on, and he just started to laugh, and then I found out the whole story I've just shared with you. So it's something I'm deeply grateful for, as I am for the book's second life, because after the film, uh, for the last six years, it's been taught as part of a course on character formation and leadership at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, and they screened the film on the evening when they come prepared to discuss the book. So uh, a <laughs> tremendous <great>. opportunity. <laughs>
1: that is fantastic. I did not know that last fact that you mentioned. That That's uh, really interesting, and it goes to prove how contemporary Wilberforce is for our day in the public policy arena. Kevin, there is so much about Moody I'd love to talk to you about. I wish we had a couple of hours here, but I was struck by how he, you know, like all of us, would at first write off a person like he did to Henry Morehouse. He kind of dismissed Morehouse and then he recognized his heir and came back and was a huge uh, supporter of Henry Morehouse. Describe that relationship and the transition that that caused in Moody's preaching.
0: Well, absolutely. You put your finger on something that was a real hallmark of who uh, D.L. Moody was. He had a teachable heart. Uh, like all of us, uh, he could make mistakes, errors in judgment, uh, things that he later wished he might have said differently. And uh, his uh, his snap judgment, as it were, of this former pickpocket, uh, Henry Morehouse, whom he met uh, in his first trip to England in 1867. Uh, Moody was uh, rather cold in his treatment initially. Yeah, very he would earnest, hardly give him the
1: time of day, would he?
0: It, absolutely. I mean, he basically said, well, if you're ever in America, come over and see me sometime. And he thought that was the end of it. <laughs> Uh, Well, it turns out that this uh, young gentleman from England, uh, Henry Morehouse, as I say, a former pickpocket who God had done a wonderful work in and and made him a very powerful preacher, very knowledgeable uh, in the words and uh, how to speak compellingly. He came all the way over to Chicago and uh, showed up on Mr. Moody's doorstep, and Moody had to go out for a series of preaching engagements, but he said to the the leaders of the church, well, give him a go, and uh, he's come all this way, and I haven't been very nice to him, and uh, you know, if if it doesn't work out so well, well, hey, nothing ventured, nothing gained kind of thing. A very cavalier attitude about it. And he came home and uh, asked his wife, how that young preacher was getting along. And he said, how's that young Irishman getting along, which shows how much Moody had been paying attention because he wasn't Irish, he was English. <laughs> uh, but she said, well, he, uh, he preaches a little differently than you do. And uh, he said, well, what do you mean? And he says, well, he, he tells people God loves them. And that cut Moody to the quick. And, uh, you know, he, he protested, well, you know, we'll see, and I'll come hear him. And because uh, Moody at that point uh, had been... Dealing in what was pretty much standard sermon fare, you know, kind of a little bit heavy on the side of fire and brimstone, that sort of thing, which he readily admitted. But the thing that, that shows his teachable heart is the second part of that story, because he went to hear this young man preach, and he'd been preaching for several nights, but he'd always been preaching from the same text, John three sixteen, and so he he got up there to preach, and Moody was watching him with an eagle eye, and he said, uh, "Let's turn to our text and." What unfolded over the next couple of hours was remarkable. From Genesis all the way to Revelation, Henry Morehouse took his people that were there in the audience on a guided tour of the Scriptures, showing that how in every age God loved those who had sinned, who had fallen short, who needed redemption, who needed a second chance. And Moody said when he heard it, the tears came. It was like news from a far country. He'd never heard anything like it, and it transformed his preaching ministry entirely, if the fire and brimstone-ish fair had been the hallmark or something that was very prominent in his preaching heretofore, the love of God became his grand theme for the rest of his life. So that's from 1870 all the way up through 1899. Remarkable. And no one who, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the most unlikely messenger, Henry Morehouse, in <laughs> Moody's teachable heart was such that when he heard it, he recognized it for the truth that was there, and he embraced it.
1: How often are we tempted to write people off at first? And that's a great lesson to all of us, I think. Um, I would love to talk to you about D.L. Moody's experiences, his special experiences with God where he just felt God's presence. There are a couple of moments in his life when that happened that you talk about in your book, and I'll have to leave that to those who read your book. But I want to take you to the end of his life. In a day and age in which we have stories of near-death experiences, and they're treated with a good dose of skepticism, D.L. Moody had an interesting experience at the end of his life. Can you take us there for just a couple of minutes?
0: Well, heart trouble had uh, been a concern for a number of years uh, with D.L. Moody, and uh, he was on a preaching tour out in Kansas City, and uh, the pains came on. He had to leave off this preaching tour that had seen great uh, moments of blessing in the early stages and return home to Northfield, and he went upstairs to his bedroom and never left it. And uh, his children, his wife and children and their spouses, very faithfully attended his bedside. But near the end, he had this marvelous vision of heaven. Somehow, uh, the veil between here and eternity uh, was laid by. And Moody had very painfully suffered the loss of two beautiful little grandchildren. And all of a sudden, he spoke up and said in a very clear voice, filled with wonder, "'Dwight, Irene, I see the children's faces.'" And it was just one of those most beautiful things. He said, uh, Earth recedes and and heaven is coming. It's time for me to go. And so very often, you know, we think about bidding farewell to loved ones here and and passing over, as it were. Sometimes that's not always easy. Sometimes it's very difficult for families. But D.L. Moody was granted a great grace, a great source of comfort, something that his family was not only able to see but to hear. And so his going to heaven uh, was made very beautiful, very touching. Uh, I can only think uh, of what a wonderful welcome he must have had, because so many who'd gone on before owed their place in heaven to what God did in and through him. So I, I can't help but think that that beautiful experience of seeing the veil between here and eternity set by, was, was God's mm-hmm. gift of solace and comfort to him.
1: Kevin, I mean, how do you summarize
0: a, a man like this? Well, it's a tall order because Mr. Moody is such a, a tremendous figure, so important to history in the proper sense, but also Christian history especially. But I think one quote really captures it. I'll share it if I may. He said, you know, the world is after peace. That's the cry of the world. That's what the world wants. Probe the human heart, and you find down in its depths a want, a cry for rest. Where can rest be found? Here it is, right here. Put your trust in the living God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength,
1: and you'll have peace. Kevin Belmonte, the author of D.L. Moody, A Life, the latest biography written on the life of this great man of God. We'll have more information about this Moody biography and its author on our website, firstpersoninterview.com. You may want to bookmark our page and come back often for updates. Also, pass the link along to others you feel might enjoy what you've listened to today. The audio archive is always open at firstpersoninterview.com. We're also found on Facebook at facebook.com firstpersoninterview. You can leave comments there, facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. Next week, Christian businessman Bill Pollard will share life lessons with us out of his life of work and service to God, his book, The Tides of Life. Now with thanks to my friend and producer, Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepherd. Thanks for listening to First Person.